0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. This morning's sermon is Acts 12:1 through 5 About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are so kind to us. Uh, we see that in so many different ways. When we think about that, especially on Mother's Day. Uh, we think about that as we sit in the congregation of a church where we can participate in the, the dedication of children to you. Oh, we're so grateful to you for the way you're growing our church, for the way you're growing our families, for the, the good gift of children. We're so grateful to be part of baptisms as well. Father, I pray that it would, it would never become mundane to us to witness The public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. While we live in a country where we are blessed with freedom. This is not the case in most places around the world. Sometimes we forget. We forget the significance of baptism. But this is a public declaration that Christ has redeemed me. I am his and he is mine. I have been changed eternally by the blood of Christ. Father, thank you for Jessica's example this morning. We thank you for your word. It is perfect and it is sufficient. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning as we continue to walk through Acts. Open our eyes to see the power of God and the futility of earthly power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Several months ago, I read an essay on the 25 most Ruthless leaders of all time. The article catalogued some shocking stories of brutality and wickedness. It it profiled figures like Attila the Hun, Emperor Caligula, Tsar Ivan IV. You might know him as Ivan the Terrible, Queen Mary I, or Bloody Mary, King Leopold II of Belgium. The list also included uh, Vladimir Lenin, Benito Mussolini, and Adolf Hitler. Now what this article focused on was the unmitigated evil these leaders perpetrated on the people under their rule. But a thought struck me while I was reading this article. As horrifying as these leaders were, they are all dead. For years they possessed great earthly power, but In a moment, each of them breathed their final breath and they became a helpless, lifeless corpse. And then they faced the judgment of God. Our text this morning reminds us that no no earthly ruler, no earthly ruler can stand against the king of heaven And no earthly ruler has the power to thwart the purposes of God and the power of the gospel. So let's walk through Acts chapter 12 by tracing four developments in a showdown between King Herod and King Jesus. The first development is found in verses 1 through 5, Jordan just read it, where we see the exercise of earthly power. Acts chapter 12 opens with a disturbing account of the death of a beloved apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse one, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. King Herod is Agrippa the first, this act of murderous persecution took place about three years after the famine mentioned at the end of the previous chapter. As we know from our study, the gospel has been spreading quickly among the Gentiles. And King Herod would not have been pleased by this. So he unleashes a new wave of persecution. This is about ten years after Stephen's persecution. So there have been about ten years of relative peace before King Herod unleashes this new wave of persecution. King Herod was a wicked ruler, but he cared deeply about how the Jewish people viewed him. Isn't it interesting that even someone in a position of great power, like King Herod, can be controlled by what people think of him? That's why the text says in verse 3, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He arrested James and had him executed as a sort of test case, making sure the people he wanted to impress would be impressed by what he did. They were. So he decides he will keep going and try to wipe out the entire leadership of the Jerusalem church. First James, now Peter. Before we move on, let me just pause and And I want us to consider what has happened here. Because I think it's too easy for us to read over these first few verses. James was a real person. James is our brother in Christ. Someone we will one day worship with in heaven. James had a family and friends. And there were undoubtedly many who who he explained the gospel to, and and he led to believe in Jesus. Think about the many precious relationships James had and how devastating his murder would have been. And to think that Herod did this. Herod did this. He beheaded James primarily because he was personally threatened and wanted the empty affection of people who opposed Christianity. How sad is this? James is the second martyr recorded in the book of Acts. He gave his life for the sake of Christ. Again, Peter is arrested in an attempt to exterminate the leadership of the church in Jerusalem in hopes that it would lead to the overall demise of Christianity. The details of Peter's arrest and imprisonment are pretty specific, right? Four squads of soldiers were guarding him, verse 4. He was bound with two chains and sentries were guarding the door, verse 6. In other words, Peter wasn't going anywhere, and Herod was going to make sure of it. Now I want you to notice two other details in the first six verses. First, what is the response of those frightened believers who just lost their dear brother and leader James and were now preparing to lose Peter as well? Well, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In their pain and confusion, they were praying. Uh, Do you remember the response of the gathered believers in Acts chapter Four after Peter and John were released from prison, the text says this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So, James has been murdered and Peter likely will be within a day's time. So, so what can their fellow believers do? Well, through Jesus Christ the resurrected and reigning king these ordinary Christians can cry out to the sovereign lord of the universe and he will hear them now of course they don't know they don't know the will of god but that's precisely why they pray they're making their requests known to God and they, they're aligning their desires with God's. They, they have gathered as a people who believe in the power and goodness of God. They know that he is sovereign and they are not. And they know that God is infinitely powerful and Herod is not. If God so chooses, he can frustrate the plans of King Herod and bring him to nothing. And so, as desperate people, they pray to God. Brothers and sisters, are are we a praying people? Are we committed to prayer? Do we have a clear sense of both our desperation and God's delight in giving grace to his children? Now, when you hear me talk about our commitment to prayer, please don't hear me talking about an organized program like a weekly prayer meeting. I'm talking about something far more than a church program, though that is perfectly fine. I have in mind a settled conviction in the heart of every member of this church that prayer is the chief exercise of the Christian faith. And it is a gift from God to be treasured and practiced unceasingly in the normal course of your life. Oh, I love I'd love to see many of you praying with each other before and after services. I hope that only continues and multiplies every single week. But I would love for focused prayer meetings to spring up in a hundred different homes in this church. That the Holy Spirit would move some of you to say, I'm going to begin inviting people over to our home. I'm going to Feed them, so I'm going to take away any excuse for them not to come. And I'm going to ask them if they would just come, enjoy fellowship together, and commit to pray together. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the gospel to advance in Minnetonka and the Twin Cities. Pray for those who are suffering within our own congregation. This is what marked the early church. Something happened, gather in someone's home and let's pray. Our practice of prayer reveals what we really believe about God. And this is what we see in our text. One commentator writes, On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power the powerless possess. Unsure of what will happen at the hand of Herod, the people are praying, but then I want you to notice that Peter is sleeping. Peter is sleeping, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping, between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Later in our study in chapter 16, we will find Paul in a similar situation, but he will be singing. St. John Chrysostom said, It is beautiful that while Paul sings, Peter sleeps. But both seem equally defiant of death, don't they? How does, I I don't know about you, I read a text like this and I wonder, how does one sing in the face of persecution and sleep in the midst of suffering? Well, if we look at clues in our text, I think this would be the answer. It happens only through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It happens only through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and it is the fruit of an unwavering confidence that God is both sovereign and good. Right? Both of those things together. And it is the Holy Spirit in those moments, it is the Holy Spirit who brings His sovereignty to mind and brings His goodness. King Herod has already murdered James and is preparing to do the same to Peter. It looks like Herod is in control. But we arrive at the second development of this story. The exercise of earthly power is interrupted by divine deliverance. Divine deliverance. Look at verse 6 again. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter is asleep. Herod is anxiously anticipating another round of public affirmation as he murders a second prominent follower of Jesus. But God had other plans. As Peter sleeps, an angel of the Lord appears and stands next to him and wakes him up. And then what happens? The chains fall off his hands. He gets dressed. He walks right out of the prison, very confused by what's happening, but wouldn't you be? And now look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So, friends, let's review. Peter is seized and put in prison where he awaits execution. He is guarded by four squads of soldiers, bound with two chains, locked in a cell, all secured behind an iron gate. When the angel appears, the chains fall off. They walk past the guards. The iron gate magically opens. So, what's the conclusion we're supposed to draw? Why all of these details? Well, we're supposed to read this account and conclude that God did this. There's no other explanation. God did this. This was a holy interruption. This was divine deliverance. This was the king of heaven exposing the utter futility of earthly power. Go ahead, Herod. Try your best. And why? Why did God do this? Well, he did it for the sake of his name and for the spread of his gospel. He did it for the sake of his name and the spread of his gospel. He he did it to display his glory and to declare his gospel. But this is why God does everything he does. In fact, this would be good for all of us to keep in mind as we face suffering and even persecution In fact, I want to ask myself this. Through my difficulty, how is God calling and strengthening me to display his glory and declare his gospel? Now, where does Peter go once he experiences divine deliverance? Look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this is John Mark's mom, where many were gathered together and were, not shockingly, praying. This seems to be a theme in the early church, doesn't it? Followers of Jesus gathered in homes to pray. We can only assume this is connected to verse 5. So these brothers and sisters are probably praying amidst other things for Peter. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. To which this wonderful, encouraging, optimistic group of Christians said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. This group of believers gathered to pray for Peter's deliverance, right? we have every reason to believe, that's why they're gathered. Gathering to pray for Peter's deliverance, but they didn't actually think God was going to do it. Can you identify with that? Have you ever prayed for something that you had little or no confidence God was actually going to answer? It seems that some of these early Christians struggled in the same ways we do. One... Pastor commented here, it is ironic that the group who were praying fervently for Peter's deliverance should regard as insane the person who informed them that their prayers have been answered. Uh, Friends, this this is a good reminder for us that even though we pray as the Lord commanded us, thy will be done, This should not negate a sense of expectation when we pray. Do we believe that God hears our prayers? Do we believe he cares? Do we believe he has the power to intervene and interrupt, thwarting the plans of the evil one to display his, speaking of God's glory and grace? Is our attitude in prayer such that we would be shocked if God actually did what we were asking him to do? Back to verse 16, they still haven't answered the door. So Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent he described to them how the lord had brought him out of the prison and he said tell these things to james and to the brothers then he departed and went to another place i i love texts like this because it brings the humanity of these biblical characters to the forefront first the people are so slow to believe it's peter that the guy who's been freed from prison can't even get his friends to answer the door Then when they do, they get so excited that he has to tell them to be quiet. Or he's going to get captured again. And once he testifies to the Lord's power and deliverance, he's on his way to the next place. And the story moves on. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Maybe that's exactly what God intended. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Essentially, Herod doesn't understand that this is a showdown between King Jesus and King Herod, and King Jesus is revealing the utter futility of earthly power. So in anger, Herod flexes his muscles, blames the sentries, and orders their execution. And this brings us to the third development in this story. First, there was an exercise of earthly power which was interrupted by divine deliverance. Now we see the illusion of earthly power and it's exposed. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So Herod has issues. He moves from being angry with his sentries to being angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We have, we have no idea why he was angry. But the people of Tyre and Sidon have set up a meeting with Herod having enlisted the help of one of Herod's most trusted servants, a man Named Blastus. Which is kind of a cool name, isn't it? But the people of Tyre and Sidon wanted peace with the king because the king could cut off their food supply, and that would be bad. So how does Herod prepare to meet them? Look at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. The historian Josephus recorded this event. And this is what he wrote. Those who flattered the king were astonished at the radiance of his silver robe when it was touched by the first rays of the rising sun And addressed him as a God, crying out, be gracious to us. Hitherto we have referenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be more than mortal nature. Friends, this is a problem. Herod has the appearance of someone who possesses great power. He has untold riches. He is clothed in a silver robe. And the people are praising him. But they're not praising him as an earthly king, they are worshiping him as God. This brings us to the fourth and final development in our text the illusion of earthly power is interrupted this time by divine judgment. Look at verse 23. Immediately. Immediately an angel the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The text tells us that God struck down this wicked king. But it also tells us why. What does it say? He did not give glory. He did not give God the glory. We could rephrase that this way, he usurped the honor due to God. He usurped the honor due to God. Herod Herod tried to steal for himself What rightly belongs to God alone. The worship and adoration of those created in the image of God. So in a single moment, the illusion of earthly power vanishes. Herod had everything he wanted. But it wasn't his to enjoy. Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God... And he will not be mocked. Which is precisely what Herod was doing. Friends, I think there is a principle here that should serve as a warning to us. Herod mocked God by ignoring him. And gladly receiving what belonged to God. In Herod, we see the principle of sowing and reaping. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. When we look at the world stage right now, and we see those with earthly power and prosperity, and yet they live in a way that mocks God, Defying the Lordship of Jesus Christ, flagrantly ignoring the truth of God's Word, their life, their life may not end exactly like Herod's, but they will face divine judgment. They will reap what they have sown. So, brothers and sisters, be warned be warned. Don't pursue earthly power and prestige. It's all fleeting. It's an illusion. It's a mirage. Give your life completely to God. Invest in his kingdom. Be poured out for the sake of the gospel. Parents, let let this way of thinking shape your family life and rhythms. In practical ways, show your children that earthly power and prestige and success is not what brings satisfaction, contentment, and joy. It is living gladly under the lordship of Jesus Christ in obedience to his word. That is the place of freedom and joy and contentment. And ultimately, it will bring not the judgment of God, but the eternal peace and smile of God. Students, when you see examples in the world around you of those that have all the things you've ever dreamed of, and yet they don't love Christ, they don't embrace the gospel, they don't live under the lordship of Jesus, then those those people, while they might appear to be happy and joyful right now, It's not real. It's a mirage, it will pass away. Look to Jesus. For joy. Treasure him more than any earthly thing. Now, what is the outcome of all that's transpired in chapter 12? Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Have we heard this before? But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the outcome of the showdown between King Herod and King Jesus. King Jesus wins. Herod is eaten by worms and the church flourishes. Brothers and sisters, nothing, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. And that should be incredibly motivating. I hope the response of every person here is, I want to be part of that. I want to invest my life in that. I want to be poured out for that. I want to live with a fearless confidence in the unstoppable power of the risen Christ. Sometimes we, I think we read the book of Acts and we look at what's happening here and we say, well, I mean, of course, if we were seeing people released from prison and, 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 and these amazing works that are all throughout the book of Acts, uh, of course, that would fuel my faith. And I would just submit to you that God is giving you 10,000 evidences of his grace and kindness that should fuel your faith. For this time in the history of the church and in this place, watching families in droves thank God for their children and dedicate their children to him, This should fuel your faith. This should remind you that the gospel is unstoppable from generation to generation. Watching a dear sister enter the waters of baptism, being raised out of the water to walk in newness of life. This should remind you that Christ is alive and his gospel cannot be stopped. God is showing us his power. We just don't have eyes to see it. So friends, open your eyes. Open your eyes to see the work of God in your midst. I love how John Stott summarizes all of Acts 12. You might hear this and think, well, you could have just said this. But this is how Stott summarizes Acts 12. He says the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God triumphing. Let's pray.